If you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 as we continue our study of verses 16 and 17, the gospel in general. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I will read those for us now. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is essential for us. In so many different ways. Obviously, it is the way that we've discussed this. It is the way that God saves. And we're going to see that today. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is essential in so many aspects of the church as well. The foundation of our unity must be the gospel. Nothing trivial or secondary can be the foundation of our unity. Also, The gospel is essential in setting the agenda for what it means to grow in your faith. Christian maturity is not coming to understand more and more things or doing more and more things, as it were. It's not a leveling up or gaining workplace experience in the church. It is growth in the gospel. That as we are conformed into the image of Christ, it is through understanding and knowing this glorious truth. And also, we, if you haven't been with us for a long time, we've essentially hit the pause button on a lengthy study of the book of Hebrews. And this is meant to be supplemental to our study there. The author of Hebrews goes on and on about how great it is that Jesus is our great high priest, that he has brought us into a new covenant. And we left off in chapter 8 where the author says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. And it's great whenever the Bible tells you. Here, here's the point in what everything we've been saying up to this point. We have such a great high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That's stunning, and it boggles the mind. And there's a sense in which I think even for someone who's outside the faith would have a sense that, man, that's really interesting. And maybe you, as you've heard me read that, that's really interesting. We have such a high priest? Well, how is it that this person becomes my high priest? How is it that he brings me into this covenant? It's through the Gospel. There's not a secondary way The gateway to all that God desires for us in growth and unity and in his ministry to us, in the ministry of his son to us as high priest and the mediator of the new covenant is through the gospel. So this raises the question, mentioned it and answered it, I think, every single time is what do I do with the gospel? What do I, as a person, as an individual, do with the gospel? And this is where we come to Romans 1.16, the second part. 
Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The way is opened to everyone. The offer of salvation is open to everyone. There is a universal offer of the gospel. The way is open to any who will believe. And we'll get to that condition in a little bit. But it's important for us to know that there is no type of person that God cannot save through the gospel if they believe. There is no type of personality that this offer of salvation in the gospel does not go out to. There is no past, no accumulation of sins that this offer of salvation does not go out to. As the old hymn says, the vilest offender. Our culture is very happy to categorize some people, depending on their violations or their offense, as being beyond grace and mercy and forgiveness. And you might have categories of people like that in your heart. But the point that Paul is saying is that for those who believe, this offer is for everyone. Anyone who will believe. And it only makes sense that we should understand the gospel this way, that it extends as an offer to anyone, no matter what your past or your sins are. Because if you really understand the nature of sin, then it better be enough to forgive and bring salvation to the vilest offender. Because if you're well associated or familiar with your own sins, you know that there has to be hope for that person if there's any hope for me. Because I am the vilest offender. We have all taken of the fruit. We have all taken the pieces of silver. We have all denied the one who redeemed us. There is no sequence of false starts that this offer of salvation does not apply to. It's always by the gospel. I think finding yourself mid-course in this path or journey of salvation and realizing how much of it you've wasted, or that you haven't lived faithfully, that, that might be the, the worst thing to realize. Regret. There is no amount of regret or sadness or sorrow or remorse about how much of your life, even in Christ, that you've wasted in your perspective that the gospel does not come to and say, I can redeem that. There is no ethnicity that this offer of salvation does not go out to. There is no white evangelical American gospel. There is no African gospel. There is no Indian or Chinese gospel. There is just the gospel. It is only the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And it goes out to all without alteration. Or cultural trappings. That's part of the beauty of it, isn't it? 
It's what we ought to expect. If you envision the world as the Bible presents it to us, that this world is not just lost and dying, as we like to say, like it's, it's on, a slight, on a sliding scale to, from bad to worse as we go along, but it's cursed and dead and lost. And if that's the case, if that, if that is the Bible's pronouncement of the world, then if salvation is to be offered to the world, then it's this subjective extension of the hand of God. One thing, one way to be saved. We don't pretty it up or alter it or try to morph it in ways to make it more applicable to certain people. It is the rescue plan of God, plain and simple. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. And it's for everyone who believes. And there is no vile practice or sin or even demonic false religion that this offer does not stand just as valid to those who believe. There is hope in this message. No one, no one is beyond this offer. Further, and here's the other side of that coin, this is God's only plan for salvation. We can run through those categories again that I just listed and say, just because you are this type of person does not mean that God has a different way of saving you. And so often today, I think we want our own personal and unique story our own unique journey. You even, you've probably heard people speak this way, haven't you? And that's the dangerous side of speaking of our testimony. Yes, it's true that it's personalized. It is for you. God finds you as an individual. It's not just like a, a group plan, like an employer health care plan. But if you are saved at all, it will always be and only be through his power at work in the objective, the only gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that rock of offense, that singular point where any story, if it is to include salvation, must intersect. And there's this plague of individualism in our culture, and that runs counter to the Lordship of Christ. He is the narrow way, the yonder wicket gate. He is the door into the sheepfold. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Because the gospel is God's plan for salvation to all people, it means that you must enter by it. He does not have a personalized or premium or a la carte unique plan. You see this in insurance plan advertisements, right? The one that keeps coming up to me is the progressive ads, right? Only pay for what you need, right? And so your insurance should accord to what you actually need covered. So I don't have a Lamborghini, so I don't need to pay for coverage for a Lamborghini, right? Or I don't have a 5,000 square foot mansion, so I don't need coverage that would attain to a 5,000 square foot mansion. 
Salvation isn't that way where you get to pick and choose and only pay for what you need. There's one plan of salvation for everyone. And it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by believing in that message, salvation is given to anyone who will believe. And so let's get to that condition. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the condition. The offer of salvation in the gospel is to everyone. No one is left out of the offer, but there is a condition. We need to understand how important it is. We need to understand exactly what this condition is. Because if the implication is, if you don't meet the condition, then the offer of salvation doesn't apply to you. You've excluded yourself from the offer if you don't meet this condition. So when he says everyone, he opens wide the gate. The offer goes to everyone who believes. It's one clear and concise condition. Meaning, if you don't believe, whatever that means here, and we'll get to that, then the power of God for salvation does not apply to you at all. So we need to ask Paul on his own terms what he means by saying that word, believe. Because we could import all the rest of what we think it means to believe. Disney has a lot of ideas for us of what it means to believe, right? Just believe in yourself. Just have a positive attitude. And you hear people say things like, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe. You just got to believe. That's not what Paul is saying here, dare I say. Let's ask Paul on his own terms what he means by believe. In Paul, if you, if you kind of read all that Paul writes, you find every time that he mentions the word believe, he's either talking about your requirement to believe or he's looking back to Abraham. Abraham, for Paul, is the person of faith, the example of faith. So Paul is looking to Abraham to answer what it means to believe. And you see this throughout the New Testament. For, for Peter, it's often, he's, he's referencing multiple times, even in the sermon at Pentecost and two times in his letters, the flood. And so believing is, is in a sense, joining the, the Noahic family in the ark, which is Christ. So that, that's, that's the imagery that, that Peter uses for belief, is, is repenting of sin and joining the redeemed community in the ark. For Paul, he looks back pretty much exclusively to Abraham. So both of those imageries are true, but we, we need to bring in Paul's here for what he means. So let's, let's just kind of think through what was Abraham's example of faith. What characterized Abraham's faith? To believe for Paul, then, means precisely to share, as he says later, to share in the faith of Abraham. So here are four things that characterize Abraham's faith. The first is that he has total trust in a person. Total trust 
in a person. And this is important because belief is not merely cognitive, right? That, that being a Christian, believing in God isn't merely, here are the doctrines and I'll check them off the list if I agree with them. And therefore, I believe in this condition applies to me. James clearly rebukes people who think that that is the way of faith. He says, the demons believe and shudder. What good is that? Obviously, it's necessary. You've got to believe the right things about God. But that's not usually what the Bible means primarily. It's trusting in a person. In fact, one commentator I was reading said that when you find this word believe in the New Testament, it almost always means trusting in a person. Namely, Jesus Christ himself. There's a difference in believing that Jesus was real, which is a historical fact and very provable, and then trusting in him. Does that make sense? It's one thing to believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States. It's another thing to entrust your life to a guy who's dead, right? That doesn't make any sense. So to trust, to entrust yourself to Jesus Christ means a certain number of things, that you believe that he's alive That he is Lord, he is who he said he is, and you're entrusting your life to him. The second thing that characterized Abraham's faith is that he had hope against hope. When things seemed most dark and bleak, and like they would never work out the way that God had promised, he still kept believing. In hope, he believed against hope that God was able to do what he had promised. It's that sure rock of confidence in God. Not in what you want God to do for you, but what you know he has promised. The third thing that characterized Abraham's faith is that it was inseparable from obedience inseparable from obedience. What would it have meant for Abraham to receive the call of God from the Chaldeans and not go? Could we have said of him that he is a man of faith? If he had received God's command to offer up Isaac and said, no, I really don't want to do that. Is that faith? Is that trusting in him? So so faith, and you can see this in, in, in James and in Paul, as you overlay those passages, that essentially they're meaning the same thing. His, his moving in obedience, his, his obeying God, is essentially the same thing as his faith in God. It's inseparable. And the fourth thing that characterized Abraham's faith, and this should be obvious, is believing in God's promises. Believing in God's promises. Obviously, we mentioned that with hope against hope. That's the degree of trust that you have in God, but... We believe in God's promises, what he has said, his objective word to us, that we really believe this is the foundation of our lives. And God's promises for us, a little bit different than Abraham, because Abraham's very tangible and and, um, communicated to him directly. For us, God's promises to us are almost interchangeable with the gospel. The true, full gospel So this encompasses all of the necessary parts of God's promises. What what are God's promises to redeem us if we don't really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? What does it mean to trust in God's promises if there is no spirit and we are not given 
the Spirit. So all of it together, it's, a, it's the bundle of God's promises, all the blessings of salvation that we believe His Word, that He is going to accomplish what He said in giving us this message. And also it needs to be said, just as an interlude, that repentance is implied in this word, believe. And you can go back to chapter 1, verse Five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Faith for Paul is inseparable from repentance. He's already introduced in verse five. To bring about the obedience of faith. Repentance is an essential part of the gospel. Jesus's first sermon and the way that Mark essentially summarizes the majority of his, the beginning of his ministry is essentially this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel only applies to those who repent. As I've already said, consider Abraham. If he had not left his father's household and the idolatrous practices of paganism, would he have been considered the man of faith? The call of obedience is leaving something behind for all of us. It's an entire life change, just like Abraham. A new home, a new land, a new hope, a new trust. Everything is different. Would, God, would God's promise to Abraham stood if he had refused to offer Isaac? No. Faith produces obedience. Faith produces life change. God's plan for you is not to sell you hell insurance and just let you go along with your life living in the land of the Chaldeans, as it were. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Repentance is so much more than being sorry when your sin begins to ruin your life. Right? Anyone been busted? Then you feel repentance, right? Contrition. Because you sense or you feel the negative implications of your sin. You might start that way, and that might be okay, like the prodigal son. He realizes as he's eating out of the trough for the pigs, even my father's servants have it better than me right now. But you can't stay there. You can't. True repentance from the heart is not, well, I guess it was better beforehand. Repentance is a gift. Acts 11, 16 through 18. This is Peter recounting his interaction with Cornelius. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they, the Jerusalem council, heard these things, they fell silent and glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, 
God has granted repentance that leads to life. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And then I want you to see this one. This is under the heading that repentance is a gift and repentance is part of belief. Acts 5. Acts 5, verse 27. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter And the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The point is this. The gospel is good news precisely because repentance is meaningful now. If Christ had not forgiven your sins, it wouldn't mean anything for you to clean your life up. Because you would still have guilt. It wouldn't mean anything for you to clean your life up because no matter how good your life can be after some spiritual experience, it doesn't live up to the standard of righteousness required us of in the law. Jesus gives his righteousness to you and forgives your debt of sin. So repentance is meaningful now. Repentance is now possible and meaningful in Jesus. Repentance is the first movement of faith. The two are interrelated. Repentance is the first evidence of the new birth. You can go back to the new covenant passages in the Old Testament. I will give them a new heart. I will write my law on their hearts. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. It's easy to skip over a phrase like this, to the Jew first and also the Greek. I think there's much that needs to be seen here and celebrated here. Let's look at this phrase, to the Jew. The good news of salvation is to the Jews. There's not another way to be saved. The Jews, God's chosen ethnic people, must enter by the narrow gate as well. Here's the stunning reality. Worshiping the one true God is no good if you're not 
trusting in Christ or if you're outside of Christ. Isn't this exactly the point of contention between Jesus and the Jewish leaders? You say you have Moses as your teacher. You say you have Abraham as your father, even God as your father, but you don't come to me. It's no good. They call on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All the right names in Hebrew. And it's not enough because they won't embrace Jesus Christ. There isn't another way. Those who are literally Jews must also trust in Jesus to be saved. We saw this all through Hebrews up through chapter 8. Paul makes this point very, very clear in Romans 4 if you want to study that. We have to be careful about how we speak of the Old Testament. This is, this is an important implication here. Have, have, you don't have to raise your hand or, or say anything, but have you ever heard people speak of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant as like God's initial attempt at salvation and his, his first plan and then Israel failed and so God came up with a new plan for salvation in Jesus? That is not how it works. That's not what it is. That's not what he was doing. It was always the plan for Israel to be redeemed in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the son of David, the prophet like Moses, the priest like Melchizedek, the offspring of Abraham, the true ark, the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. It was always the plan. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, brothers and sisters. It was always plan A. There's no plan B. And this is precisely the stumbling block of the Jews and why they did not want to enter by that narrow gate because they had gained such confidence in the law. And so when Jesus comes essentially saying, yeah, that that law that you like so much was essentially sent as a guardian, was sent to imprison everything under the law so that I could release you from the law. You've set your hope on Moses. But the law of Moses came in to increase the trespass and to show that sin was sinful beyond measure so that you would turn to me. Isn't this exactly what Jesus does on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples? Shows them that all of it, from Moses, the prophets, and the writings, all of it was pointing to him suffering and being raised. God does not have two ways of saving people. This is the point. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. There's not two ways. And there are not two peoples of God. There are the redeemed. Then Paul says something that is fascinating. He says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we're going to look at this phrase, first and also. It's kind of an awkward phrase to focus on for a little bit, but in it, I think you'll see some of the mystery and glory of the gospel. As we prayed at the beginning, I want you to be stunned at what God is doing in the gospel. And I think there are at least four things that Paul is probably talking about in these few words. 
The first sense is what I would say or call historical. The gospel and therefore salvation came first to the Jews. So it's a historical accounting that that it first came to the Jews. And this is already stunning and exciting because that means that the gospel is not a new way. Jesus speaks of Abraham and says that he looked forward and saw my day and rejoiced. That, it, that essentially even the patriarchs knew that there was something else. This was 400 years before the law was given and they knew that one would come. The gospel was preached even to them. It was the way of salvation for them as well. It, it was definitely not fully formed and they did not have his name and they did not know exactly how it was going to come, but it was still the gospel. Believing in the one that is supposed to come. One of the ways that we see this is that we share the faith of Abraham, just like I said earlier, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't because he was keeping the law. He didn't have the law. He believed, trusted in God and was justified on that basis. And that's exactly how we are saved. The second sense that I think he's meaning here is rejection. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. You don't have to turn there, but Acts 13, beginning in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first. To you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Paul's ministry in general is characterized by the fact that the Jews have rejected, for the most part, the gospel. And it's epitomized in their crazed zeal to murder him. They so hated Paul. And it's it's almost as if all of the Jewish rejection of Jesus is concentrated in the person of Paul. And they want to kill him and they want to murder him and they successfully imprison him. And finally, he appeals to Caesar and Caesar puts him to death. The gospel was first preached to the Jews, but for the most part, they rejected it. It was necessary to first be preached to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Even Jesus' ministry. When we finally get to the Gospel of John, which was likely one of the very last books written to be added to the New Testament. John 1.11 He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. And by the time you get to chapter 12, verse 23, the, the story is just fascinating and I love it. So some Greeks come seeking Jesus. 
And they first find Philip and like, hey, we'd like to see Jesus. Philip doesn't know what he wants, what, what to do with these Greeks seeking Jesus because he thinks that Jesus is only the Messiah of the Jews. And so he goes and finds Andrew. Andrew, what do we do? There's Greeks seeking Jesus. What do we do? And Andrew goes and tells Jesus, hey, there's Greeks seeking you. We don't know what to do. So up until this point in John's gospel, he's been saying, my time has not come. My hour is not yet. And then finally, when these Greeks come, it's the first time Jesus says, the hour has come. First to the Jews, his own people did not receive him, then to the Greeks, Gentiles in general. Also, there's a sense in which there's inclusion. The gospel is, in, in this, this is kind of the, the grammatical sense of this word, it is first of all to the descendants of Abraham. But for the very purpose of inclusion. If you look at uh, Romans 9, the first five verses, you get a sense of how desperate and crushed Paul is that the Jews have rejected Jesus. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed And cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. And to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He's crushed. Depressed even. Willing to have himself cut off from Christ for the sake of his Jewish brothers. But the very reason that they have received these promises, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, this is what God says to Abraham. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The very reason the Jews... epitomized in Abraham, who is the father of us all in that sense, the reason he received the blessing, the covenants, the patriarchs, and all of that is so that all the nations of the earth could be blessed. So it is first, first of all, to the Jews in that this is a blessing that God gave Abraham and his children, but the very purpose of giving that blessing was to bring us all in. The gospel is first of all to the descendants of Abraham, but meant to include the Gentiles. In the last sense, I think that he's meaning here, or could mean, I think all four of these are probably at work here, is the remnant. This is a beautiful theological theme through the Bible, if you can detect it and underscore it. The remnant. Even though the Jews, for the most part, rejected the gospel, The word of God has not failed in saving the remnant. You can see this in Romans 9, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Perhaps one of the most controversial statements in all the Bible, for in this way all Israel will be saved. The remnant... He will save the remnant. This is exactly what we saw in Hebrews. I and the children God has given me. Even down to this very day, there remains a remnant. 
the true Israel of God, even the Israel within Israel, will be saved. God does not fail with the Jews totally. Or even virtually totally. And this is good news for us. And this is the point Paul is making in Romans. That for it to be good news for us Gentiles, that God is now opening the way to the Gentiles, if He had failed in saving His first people, why would we have any confidence that He could save us? But He has not failed. The Word of God has not failed. He will save the remnant. Just as He says to Elijah in the days of Ahab, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He will save the remnant. All of this shows God's major drama and demonstration of His glory. It's wrapped up in this beautiful display of His saving power in the Gospel. Even overcoming the devastating problem of human unbelief and human will. And just, just as an aside, before we move on to the next phrase, pay attention to what happens in your heart as I attempt to explain the glories of the gospel, these, these deeper things of the historical plan of salvation, the gospel at work from all ages, unto all ages. What happens in your heart as I explain that? I'm not the best communicator, but as I pull the curtain of simplicity back and let you see in as best I can this glorious plan of salvation of God Blessing Abraham and bringing in all the nations and saving everyone who would believe. Do you marvel? Do you want to press on to the mature teachings of Christ? What person? And the whole, the whole question is, are you bored? Are you bored by this? Because what person, when they sense the vastness of space, let's say you've got a person who is interested in astronomy and loves space and comets and orbits and all this stuff. I do. Um, but just imagine that there's a person like that that you know. Imagine that you do. And at the moment that you discover, oh, space is, in a sense, virtually unending. It keeps going and going and going. And it's expanding even. In this mysterious sense, as space and time is stretched further and further. What person, when they realize it, they say, well, I'm no longer interested because it's too big for me to understand. That doesn't happen. And what person who's really interested in nature and loves the outdoors and trees and rocks and parks would not, at the drop of a hat, go on a free trip to the Grand Canyon just for the chance to stand once again at the precipice and look into that vastness. It's too big to comprehend. It's too big to understand. You can't see it all. So when I describe, and I know I'm not the best communicator, but when I describe and try to pull back the curtain of the majesty of what God is doing from all time to all time in salvation, in the gospel, does it excite you or do you say, well, it's too much for me? It's too lofty for me. I'm, I'll, I'll back out of that. And that's between you and the Lord. And that's, it's a really big deal. I'm not just trying to make a mountain out of a molehill here. Because at the end of Paul himself going through this majesty of the Gospel and him 
bringing the Gentiles in, this blessing, this mystery that was hidden for ages and now revealed in the apostles. This is what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you sense in your heart a lack of motivation for pure worship of God, it might be because you haven't allowed yourself to behold the glories of what he's actually done. And we're okay with a domesticated, boiled down little version of the gospel. Oh, for grace to know and trust Him more. The Gospel is also the good news to the Greeks. For everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The Greek, uh, for Paul, means essentially two things. And it's important to have these two in mind as we understand the wisdom of God in salvation. It's really Paul's umbrella term for all non-Jews. And that's really good for you and me because that's you and me. If you're a non-Jew, if you're not a literal descendant of Abraham, this is where you come in, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says, is God the God of Jews only or of Gentiles also? And he answers his own question. Yes, of Gentiles also. This is essentially the decision that the Jerusalem Council made. That yes, Gentiles can be saved too. God saves the non-Jews in exactly the same way that He saves the Jews. Repent and believe. It's the same message. There is unity in the human family, even though there is a clear distinction between Jew and non-Jew. This is why I believe Luke traces the genealogy of Christ all the way back to Adam, not just Abraham. Because we're all in Adam. We're all descendants of Adam. And Christ is the Messiah of all humanity, even though he is a descendant of Abraham. We won't have time to answer this question, but it's an important question. Then why have a special chosen people If he's just going to save everyone the same way, if the plan for salvation is for everyone to believe in Jesus, repent of sin and believe in Jesus, then why have a special people at all? That's a sermon for later. But just in brief, Jesus had to be born under the law and be obedient to the law and die under the law to redeem those who had broken the law, even if you had never received the law. Think of it this way. Redemption is possible in Christ precisely because he fulfilled the law so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who believe in him. That's why all the blessings of salvation are given to you because Jesus fulfilled the law for you and you receive his righteousness through faith. This shows that even in choosing a special people for himself, in choosing the Jews... The plan was for the gospel to be offered to all people, 
in Christ. So that's the first sense that Paul means. Greeks meaning anyone who's not a Jew in a general sense. But Greek also is some symbolic for all the accumulation of the wisdom of man. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Right? This is the contrast in the majority of Paul's writings. So whereas the Jew kind of symbolizes law abiding and, and keeping the law and the commandments, legalism, or that would be the error of it, the Jew, uh, the Greek rather, symbolizes wisdom, seeking knowledge, philosophy. That's why, where 1 Corinthians, especially the first two chapters, is so helpful. You can read that later. But is this not the word that the world needs to hear? The, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, in the sense of even the wisdom of man, even those who would claim to be wise, even if you've accumulated all of human wisdom, you can only enter by the narrow gate. So what about all your wisdom and science and knowledge? The pride of our age is knowledge. We think we have unmasked the mysteries of the universe and seen past the veil that lied upon our ancestors. But if you talk to any honest physicist, they say, we we just don't know. We don't really know at all. We have theories that work with each other, but we don't really know. And the more we discover, the more progress we make, the more we understand. We, We don't even know the most basic things, like what is matter? We don't know. It's the same with social studies and relationship models and secular psychology. You think the world understands what a spiritual creature like you and me actually need in our heart of hearts? Do you think the world's wisdom can answer the problem of human depravity? A creature made in the image of God? who has violated God's glory and been separated from the only one who can bring wholeness? Do you think the world has the answers for that? They think they do. And we're just now beginning to see the horrific fallout of gender confusion, which is the logical conclusion of modern secular psychology. This invictus, the sovereignty of the individual, that I will be what I will be. It's essentially saying what God says of himself in Exodus. I am that I am. I will be who I will be. This is the promise of modernism. That you are who you want to be and you make of your life what you want it. Follow your heart. It's right for you. That teaching is anathema. And this is where the Scriptures enter and say the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. And the Gospel collides with the fragile kingdom of men's wisdom. Just like that uncut stone from Daniel's vision, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that collides with all the kingdoms of the world and crushes them to pieces and establishes a kingdom that will never be destroyed. That's the wisdom from God, the wisdom that is from above. All human wisdom and schools of thought crumble. The gospel 
is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. doesn't matter how wise or smart you think you are, how much you think you have come to understand, no matter what plateau of knowledge you think you have accomplished. Don't let your pride and confidence in your understanding be the reason that you do not embrace the apparent folly of the cross. I know we've all encountered this. But if you would, just heed the words of Solomon. Ecclesiastes 2, 12-17 So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more to gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more to gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, and yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also Vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the day, in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just as the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. What has the wisdom of man gotten us? As we progressed in our scientific and enlightened understanding of the world, it's only brought more death and suffering and pain. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Everyone who believes. And it's offensive. Essentially the claim that all of your wisdom, all of your smarts, Everything has gotten you nowhere. You're going to die just like the fool. The world esteems themselves as so wise. So come to Christ, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God that is from above, the power of God. Isn't the gospel something that looks foolish on the surface, exactly what we should expect? Everything that the world comes up with, that man comes up with, we're so infatuated with at first. Oh, look at this new technology. Look at this new persuasion, this new school of thought, this new book. And we're so excited about the products of the wisdom of man. And they appear to us to be wisdom at first. And to the world's eyes, the gospel is foolish and it's silly. And even us, those who are redeemed in it, we're maybe embarrassed from time to time about some of its claims. But isn't that exactly what we would expect? If we are so blinded by our own folly and our own pride and our own wisdom, then the gospel ought to be something that appears foolish. Because it's only that, some category-breaking message that could offer salvation and break through this facade of pride. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ even as death is the great equalizer the wise die the wise die just like the fool but in the gospel Jesus Christ tastes death 
for everyone. He transcends that equalizer of death and offers life to those who will believe. Trust in Him today. Flee to the only rock of refuge. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, even you. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for Your gospel and the wisdom, the apparent folly of the gospel. I pray that You would save us we're we're in need of your saving power. Even if we have been in Christ for many, many years, we need your spirit, even as your servant Paul says, that we are being saved even today. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Give us strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We may be filled with all the fullness of God. In Jesus' name, amen.